from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition coming to you on Tuesday afternoon, Election Day. This will be posted on Wednesday. We'll know more about the election, big moments in the United States at the very least. This is Cade Masty. We have the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. Good afternoon, fellas. Good afternoon. We are coming to you on Zoom as we have been for the last six or seven months in the time of COVID-19. We're going to go full two hours. We've got uh, an opening half, uh, opening half hour, first quarter, mostly on the election. We'll touch COVID quickly and then talk about election analytics, this being election day. We've got a couple of open segments on sports and we'll close with an interview with Bruce Feldman, longtime college football writer and one of our favorite guests, Bruce Feldman, his new book out. So that's the setup for the day, guys. Uh, real quick, because we want to get on to election, anything in particular catch your eye in the world of COVID-19? Of course, numbers are going up and up and up, which is eye-catching, but anything else? I want to ask Adi a question, actually. So <laughs> would you agree that let's assume someone uses st- is going to use statistical modeling or, you know, uh, let's call it diffusion modeling or epidemiological modeling to make predictions for covid do we agree that predictions now should be more accurate than predictions from four or five months ago? And if the answer is no, what's causing the, whether it's non-stationarity, meaning the data from the past doesn't hold as much, maybe it's the mixing weights, like who's getting the disease, maybe it's the death rates before don't apply now. So I would think that since we have a time series now, If death rates were moving in a certain way, we could model it. If infection rates were going in a certain way, if the mixture distribution of who's getting it was changing, we could kind of have some idea about that. So I wanted to ask Adi, but anybody, that question. All right. So I've actually been tracking some of these things. I think we should be able to do these things much better. In the early stages, we had a lot of trouble because everything was interacting with everything else. And the model was extremely heterogeneous. So we didn't really understand that lockdowns would affect different subsets differently. But we're really starting to get a sense of that. I think in in statistics or economics, they call this elasticity. So we know that people are getting sick and there's more exposure. But I want to sort of see how how the death rates change as the exposure rates change. And that is really the variable that has changed a lot over time Um, in the beginning um, it was almost uniform, maybe even a more elderly getting, getting sick than the young. Now it's clearly the younger getting sick at a higher rates than the, than, than the elderly. And that is, we have enough data, I think, to kind of track those things. I've been looking, I, I, I kind of put off a lot of my day, daily COVID analysis and now do it more, more like every other week. Um, yeah. And that I, I used to sort of be obsessive about it. One of the things that I learned that um, most in almost every place, there's a, a lag of about three weeks where death rates trail um, infections, but the, the slope has been changing very differently. So the slope, you, 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 if, you, if, you, if you were always tracking every infection, then the, any change in slope would be change in treatment. Um, but we're not tracking tra- uh, uh, every infection. We, we track some fraction of them. And of course, there's a difference in the population of people who get it. And so the actual slope, the changing slope, um, is, is really interesting. And I think we have a oh, lot of... Data. I'm sorry. I'm is this a, yeah. Is this a changing slope in what? Changing so in slope words, in what? Uh, so just think about um, for every... Uh, think of this as, as, as a death rate. So that's a number. It's a fraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you can look as you see as the, as the cases go up, 
um, deaths rate go up with some multiplier. That's the slope that I'm referring to. Um, I should have been a little bit clearer about that. So oh, as I mean, cases go up, death rate goes up? Or not death rate. Deaths go up, just deaths. Are we regressing? So the y-axis is deaths. The x-axis is cases. That's right. I see. Um, and then so that so that the slope of that line is is the death rate, if you will. It's kind of crude to talk about it, but it is. Um, and if you kind of bin this and look at over time, you'll see that 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 number chain has changed a lot. And it's actually highly variable from state to state. Um, and it's highly variable over time. And so that's an Scotty, interesting- isn't the scientific question of interest. One reason the slope could change, as you just talked about, is it could be the mixture of who's getting oh, it. Oh, of course. But, that's or, a, that's wait, 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 this, it matters. One, one is the mixture of the cases is different, which we know is true, mm-hmm. or it could be conditional on an AIDS bracket, the death rate has dropped. Yep. So which of the two is it? Well, that's the, that's the, in some sense, the $100 billion question. I had maybe got a little value on it. Um, I actually, I really wish I could say that I thought it's the death rates that have, have genuinely dropped. I really wish I could say it, but I don't really think I can. Um, I know that there's been better treatments that we have remsisvir, which is very slight change in mortality. Very slight. Um, uh, dextromethasone really seems to have a slightly relevant, big, slightly bigger, but it only is a subset of people is kind of small who benefit from it. Um, early, or, you know, there's proning they do. They do better t- treatment in the, IC, in the ICU. But I really think the, the lower death rates come from two factors, more identification of cases and a better population, better population, a younger population of infected. And that's really where it's driven down. You can, one of the things that I did is I look at country by country. So the UAE of all places has the lowest uh, in IFR of any place in the world. It's, it's well less than 0.2. IFR. That's because they, they um, IFR mean infection fatality rate. But I believe they've identified every single person, every case in the country. They, they just massively made everybody get tested again and again. And they, and they, they didn't miss. Uh, Body, I just want to follow up on this point. Your point is because we're doing, we may, we can debate. We're going to get politics in a second, whether we're doing enough testing, but let's separate that. The fact that we're doing more testing suggests that um, we're going to pick up people maybe that were more asymptomatic. Oh, absolutely. Would have in the past. And therefore we would expect the death rate to go down, but it doesn't mean conditional on Someone, it could be a mixture of two things. One is we're picking up more asymptomatic people who maybe have a lower dosage, therefore they die less. And it could be we're testing more young people, which means we're identifying more young people, which is the, it's not the, let's be clear. What's on your x-axis is a number of identified cases. That's right. And that's different than the number of actual cases. And that slope could be very different. So, so I think this is really interesting. I, I think you're, I think you're, I'm going to guess you're wrong that 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 holding everything else constant treatment is making a difference, but I don't know that for sure. But also, just the strength of your position makes me wonder about something we've been saying from the beginning, which is if you want to get sick, if you're going to get sick, you want to get sick later on the same because that 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 idea is me, the same person in March as I am in November, is less likely to die if I get this in November. You're saying well, I don't know if that's true or not. You're saying, you know, we're going to record, we're more likely to record you. And, um, you know, you maybe you're more likely to get it since you're healthier earlier. It wasn't healthy people getting it. You're saying it's those factors. It's not the same person, same conditions, less likely to die. You're saying that's less of a factor than we have claimed to this point. I think that's interesting. A little provocative. 
Yeah, so just quickly, just to make sure we're talking. So one possibility is the reason is because also in terms of absolute value, we could be talking about a drop, let's say you're a early to mid 50s year old male with no particular conditions. Let's just say <laughs> just randomly I'm picking that. Um, now, why are you pointing at yourself, Adi? You could be pointing I'm at pointing it all of you, except for Shane. Except for Shane. <laughs> um, but you could be talking about a drop of from one half of 1%, 0.5 to 0.45. Yeah. Everyone would say, wow, that's a 10% reduction. Yeah. But, you know, that's a great point, Eric. In fact, I'm going to make that point later when we talk about football decision making later on in our, in our discussion. Okay. Well, there we go. But I, I want to add a couple things. Um, for first of all, you know, one of the things that I, I finally met someone, finally met someone, someone that I know fairly well, uh, I just got diagnosed and he's sick right now. And I asked him, what is your, uh, what did your GP say, your general practitioner? Uh, are you getting are you getting monoclonal antibodies or are you, antibodies? You're getting any of these early anything happening at all that you're getting while you're not very sick at all. Hopefully that's where it'll stay and it'll get better. And the answer was what GP? And that I think is you know so typical of American kind of medical care is that we don't go see a doctor. We don't even have anyone to call. So many middle aged men in particular just are just sort of, they don't tend to see anyone until it's absolutely necessary. So this person got, got sick because his kids were tested. He got tested, he got sick. And, you know, he just spoke to someone on the phone and said, just let it ride it out. You know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in, in, our, our, in, our, in our community about these things. And we don't really know. And um, I really wish that uh, we were better regulated um, so that we could actually figure out if there are really early treatments that we could take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, just a couple more quick ones before we move on to the election. We've got a couple of questions and observations from some of our listeners. First, coming through uh, Twitter, we are, of course, at, at W Moneyball. At W Moneyball is our handle there. So John C. Munoz writes um, about, this, about this algorithm that MIT's come up with to identify COVID via coughs. They now have tens of thousands of audio recordings of coughs from COVID-19 positive and non-COVID-19 positive people. And they say this thing can accurately diagnose COVID via the sound of a cough with 98.5% accuracy. So, and, and even if they're ace, even if you're um, otherwise asymptomatic. So terrific, interesting, you know, we should be doing all kinds of things like this, so new ways to assess. And if this is legit, it's kind of exciting. So, and, you know, obviously so it's this, this thing discriminates a COVID cough from a non-COVID cough with 98.5% accuracy. That's what it says. I have, I'm going to pick on this. My first question is where'd they get this data? I mean, this is probably highly specific data. They went to a hospital. um, They recorded coughs from people. I mean, this is one of the biggest problems of doing data analysis is you do a a data analysis for a certain population and then try to extrapolate this. Um, and this is a toughie. I mean, where are you getting non-COVID coughs? Where's a where's a where's an audio recording database that's current? Uh, I mean, it, this is undoubtedly extremely specific to the ki- types of to the data source. All right, I think these are fair skeptical reactions. We always should bring some skepticism to these things, and yet we should pay attention and see if something interesting evolves. Yeah. We'll look for the uh, the rigorous. Look, we may be able to if you're going to do that. Just quick, just in one sentence. There may be a time in the future where artificial intelligence, facial recognition skin color, all of these things may well be predictive of it. You know, heat sensors on your body, et cetera. Yeah. That, that, why not? Yeah. We need to cast a wide net on that. Okay, last question. 
this on our mailbag. We now have a mailbag. You guys can reach us. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. You can hit us up, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We have a question from Rob Rahner from Tenton Falls, New Jersey. He asked just, can you discuss the latest understanding on activities? Like what's safe, what's not safe? I thought we could do this real quick as a segue out of here. I think we all have pretty good, our own personal hierarchy of activities anyway. What do you guys feel very comfortable doing now that maybe you didn't feel comfortable doing before? What are you not yet doing because you're not comfortable? And is there a gray area that you'll do it if you have to or if you need to, but you'd rather not make a practice of it? Let's hear a real quick kind of, where, where, what is that hierarchy for you guys? I bet there's some, quite a bit of consensus here. Okay, well, I'll tell you what I'm not doing, which I'm sad about. I'm not yet going to the gym. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm not yet going to the gym is gym, gym needs to be useful, has to be done a lot. <laughs> so even if I thought that going once was not a big deal, which I probably isn't, um, I got to do it a lot. And so, you know, and I'm not going to get started. What I did do was go to the airport and take a flight. Yeah. Okay. How'd you feel about that? And what do we understand now? My understanding is that the air filtration systems are so good. I keep on reading the line. It goes like this. Like it's safer than, I don't know, shopping for groceries or something. It's supposed to be very safe, which is a little surprising yeah. given the proximity. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So what I did was um, you wear a mask the whole flight. Um, the air is a good air filtration system. The, flash, the flight was 50% full. That was a help. Um, no one in the row next to us or behind us sitting with my wife. Um, and uh, in the airport, um, N95 mask. All right. So I'm, I, I, I feel safe doing essentially any outdoor activity. Um, I do not feel safe enough necessarily unless I was, you know, had a very compelling reason like a family sickness or something to fly somewhere. I mean, I, I, I just, the, the, the air filtration studies, they're done by the airlines, right? <laughs> no, the D Department of Defense did one. And oh, okay. Well, uh, the, the unbiased Department of Defense then. Well, All right. Well, apparently Harvard right. University did one as well. And that's, that is one of your, a place that, that you have a degree from. And so does Eric. So maybe. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Eric, Eric. yeah, for me, the equation is very simple, which is what Adi was implying, which is length of exposure, probability of high exposure, um, whether everyone is wearing a mask. And so for me, like, I, I wouldn't go to a restaurant because people aren't indoor, because people aren't wearing masks while they're eating, and there's not good airflow. I would go outside to a restaurant and sit there if there was proper spacing and distance. Mm -hmm. um, I personally wouldn't get on a flight, not because I don't think they have good filtration systems. The, it, the length of exposure seems very mm -hmm. long to me. And yeah. so I wouldn't do that. But that's it. That's my equation. Yeah, good. So I'm mostly in the same. I'm, I, I've taken a lot of flights, actually, out of, out of necessity, and it always feels a little crazy. Um, so far, I don't think we have a lot of incidents of people contracting it on flights, but I think that's kind of the as needed category. But, I, you know, I, I do almost anything outside and almost nothing inside. I mean, if I'm inside, people need to have masks, and it needs to be a short period of time, and ideally a lot of ventilation. But if I'm outside, almost anything goes. And the other thing that we've learned is that there's, there's you not much. Outdoor, would you go to an outdoor stadium with lots of people proximate to you? you know, I would. Adi says yes. I Probably. If I had control over it, if I didn't have to go through concourses that were really crammed, um, probably, probably. I'll give you a scenario that I just went to this past weekend. I went to a drive-in music festival. Cool. Where it was about, I think, you know, 50 or so, maybe 50 to 100 cars. 
and you have and you were allowed to get out of your car there's like you know bathroom facilities and stuff like that obviously but you were you had to have a mask you had to wear a mask outside of your car and you're mostly in your car yeah it's interesting good creative solution to things one thing i do think we've learned is that 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 um touching things isn't quite as dangerous as we thought it was early on. Maybe a right. lot less dangerous than we thought it was good. You know, so you don't worry as much about going to the grocery store and, and door handles and things like that. Adi? I'm just going to finish with it. With it. The big mystery to me right now is how safe or unsafe, depending on you, um, it, it would be to be in a very large indoor space with very few people mm. that, and everyone wearing masks. So this is important yeah, because yeah. Right. Uh, the religious community of which we're actively a part um, many of the many of the many of the synagogues have been having services for a while, but a lot of them are just starting to open up. There are these monstrous uh, facilities that seat a thousand. They're allowing twenty five people in them. Yeah. Well, audience, uh, so religious um, services are a great example, but so is classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we've got very similar, not not quite as large, but you know, mass maybe an hour and a half classes with a mask in a classroom with twenty five percent. That's a relevant. That's relevant to all of our lives, frankly, right this minute. All right, guys, that is a, a little bit on coronavirus because it is such continuing to be a, you know, the, the context of our lives. But we have this other context, which is the election. So this is Tuesday afternoon. So far, it's been uneventful, largely around the country. At least that's the reports that I've seen so far. Um, by the time this is posted, we'll know a lot more about how things have gone. I'm curious, over the last week, we've talked about this weekly for the last month or so, what about the elections, Kutcher? And in particular, what are you thinking about today, other than the voting logistics or not that you're going through? What are you thinking about as we wait for results to start coming in tonight? So, if if so, this is what I'm thinking about. So, if someone had told you before the election season started, or even six months ago, that 5:38, which most people consider a source, maybe a very good source for election information had Biden at a 90% to 10% favorite, which is their final numbers, by the way. The question then becomes, to me, why are the betting sites in the right now in the high 60s? Why is there this tremendous uncertainty still when right now the odds are 9 to 1, at least according to 538, and growing? They grew over the last two weeks. They didn't shrink from 98% down to 90 that's what's caught my eye, which is that the statistically adjusted poll data is different than the betting data and might even be different than if you took a random sample of people off the street, not ask them how they're voting, but who do you think is going to win? Yeah. That's what's caught my eye. So, Eric, we've been talking about that some over the last couple of weeks. It, 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 remains, it remains that provocative to you. So we've talked about, one, those markets aren't you know, super efficient. The bet sizes are typically limited. We've talked about the fact that, you know, silver and the guys that aggregate polls, they can't put everything in the model. So the markets consider some things like voter, voter suppression is a model very specifically. They're probably not modeling out legislative um, contingencies to the extent that they're there. Yep. So there's just space outside the model. And we've talked about, well, you kind of need to regress models results as a, res- as a consequence of that. And maybe that's kind of where the market has come from. Adi. Yeah, I mean, there's the, Nate Silver and other uh, aggregators, they, they'll model the, the known unknowns, um, if, that, if, that, if that description makes any sense. But I think the betting market will also sort of price in unknown unknowns. Um, there's a, you know, a huge mystery about model specification. I mean, really sampling frame specification. How, who's, how aligned is the polling 
universe, the sampling frame, we call that, with the actual voting universe, the sampling, the, the voter population. And I think this is shifting every year. I saw a nice chart recently that described um, the, the random digit dialing um, success rate back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, which is up around 40 percent. And now I think if you're going to get 0.4 of a percent, that would be considered decent. Oh my. Mm-hmm. I, I, I asked my MBA students how many of them participated in a poll and one, one, one raised their hand virtually. And then and the other said they just wouldn't even bother to answer a phone call from someone from a number they didn't recognize. So you, you don't it's not just the hard. It's not just that it's hard, because if you try hard enough, you can eventually get a sample that's going to be somewhat rep- representative, presumably. But you think it's you think it's biased that there's. It just can't yeah, get there's a bias, and that bias is unknown, and that yeah. throws in a wrench into the whole formulation. It, yeah, the one analysis that probably was the most significant to me was there was analysis. I don't think it was on five thirty eight. Maybe it was in the Washington Post that looked at the following: Let's look across elections. Let's look at the distribution of prediction errors across elections, and how large a prediction error would 2020 need to be, if you take 538 as the truth, how large a prediction error at each state level would you need for Trump to win the election? And the answer was about two and a half times as large an error as you saw in 2016, which was the largest prediction error that had ever happened. So that to me was a very interesting analysis, which is we recognize that predictions are wrong, we can compute a distribution of those prediction errors. And then we could say, if we assume some reasonable, even extreme values on the empirical distribution of prediction errors, where would that put the current election? Right. And it had still, if the 2016 prediction errors in the same magnitude in the same states happen in 2020, Biden wins, I think, 350 electoral votes. Okay. Not the same magnitude, same state, same direction. So, uh, same magnitude and direction. I, 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 do, I do think the other unknown, unknown, I guess, in, in Audi's parlance, is, is the voter logistics, though. I, I think that's part of what is the uncertainty here is we, you know, I mean, I think there's very widespread concern about voter suppression and, and all these other things. And perhaps, you know, the fact that things sound at least like they're going OK so far today is maybe may, maybe reducing some amount of that uncertainty. It's not in my mind, but I, you know, I, I think I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic on these things than a lot of people. Well, there's room for pessimism yet. And well, there's a lot, there's, depending on how definitive results are, they, we could do this for a long time. Yeah. And the longer we go, the more room there is for cynicism. Uh, there, there, there are, you, Eric said, errors would need to be two and a half times as great as they were in 2016. So there are forces going in both directions in this case. So a big mistake they made in 2016 is that they didn't education weight their responses. And it turns out that they were undersampling less educated populations, and it led them to be biased towards the, the Democrats because the education ran that. Direction. Well, that's been fixed. So they fixed that. And so that goes in the direction of you'd expect smaller errors this time. On the bigger era side, look at the world we're living in and look at the fact that there are states that have had as many people vote early as voted the entire time in 2016. And so the just the dynamics of voting, early voting, absentee voting, mail-in voting is just so different. I just can't imagine that we don't have an increase in error as a result of those. But I don't know how these things counterbalance. I'm just saying there are forces that would suggest errors might be bigger, despite the fact that things have improved in the last four years in terms of polling technology. Historically, our, 
we our electorate generally turns out at about 50 percent do you think that we're going to have a massive uptick in that i mean in closer i do to- i think everybody does and i'm really curious what you guys think the consequence of that is. so let me just tell you the data so i actually looked at this adi so i looked at the time series of turnouts it turns out you're right it hovers around it historically hovered between 56 and 58 percent um for the last couple elections Obama 2008 Ford, it's been around 60 in the low 60s. Um, There's roughly 240 million registered voters in the United States. So 60% would put you at 144 million. We had over 100 million mail-in and early votes. I think they're thinking it's going to be somewhere between 155 and 160 million voters. So we're talking well into the 65, 66% range. All that people are saying is historically... It has been better for Democrats. Why is that, by the way? I've heard that before. I don't quite understand. Why well, that. because I, I, there's, there could be lots of reasons. One could be voter suppression in the past. Another could be the cost to vote. And so, you know, if for some people, you know, I'll make this. This is not made up. It's, I'm trying not to be political here. I live in Texas and there's one drop box per state. And it's that's 40 miles for me. But now I can vote by mail. And I can just put it in the mail and it gets there. And so you've lowered this. I'll be an economist here. You lowered the transportation cost of voting. So people that can't afford to vote can now afford to vote. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that narrative historically is. One dynamic is that the, the, the less economically privileged demographic is not quite as overwhelmingly democratic as it used to be. And so changes in economics wouldn't privilege them as much. Shane, I'm sorry I've talked. No, I, I mean, I, I think that is certainly something people are talking about, that the, you know, the, the, poor, uh, the poor parts of the population maybe aren't as democratic as they used to be. But I do th- still think they are more democratic than they are Republican. And the extent to which poor people are more able to vote in this election because they voted early and don't have to actually take time off on Election Day um, does probably argue that for, for a swing towards the Democrats. This is something that I think people are saying some lately, and it makes sense to me. For all the whinging about voter suppression, and perhaps quite justified, it's possibly that it's it's possible that it's easier now than ever before to vote. And so even if there is some voter suppression, it may be swamped in the other direction by the change in technology and change in availability. Yeah, so I'll just uh, comment um uh, first, nice use of the whinging. I know that's an English expression. I had to look that up the last time you used it. Um, mm-hmm. And so congratulations. Um, but my, uh, uh, one of the things that the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party has, has invested a lot of effort in is um, trying to get voter turnout in poorer neighborhoods, anticipating that on the day of the election, there'd be very, very long lines. They don't have nearly the, uh, the capacity that our local my local uh, suburban community has with very, very well-staffed, um, right. um, short lines, uh, easy to vote, long hours. The hours might be long, but basically the issue that they have in the inner cities, and not even such inner cities, but kind of outer cities, is that the, the activity of voting on the day of election is extremely difficult. And the, the Democratic Party has spent an enormous effort getting those populations to vote early and mail in. And so I think that the, this trend is going to absolutely help the Democrats. Well, let's hear what you guys think this is going to you know, bear out. And we've only got a few minutes. We're going to run this first segment on a little bit long, but we're, we're going to run out of time here in a second. Um, before we do that, before we get your prediction, one last question. The, the aggregators and the betting markets all say Biden's going to win. Let's consider um, for a moment 
how Trump might win. So let's do what the psychologists and organizational behavior people would call is a pre-mortem. Let's imagine that, 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 that Trump wins. How did that happen? Imagine we wake up tomorrow or at the end of the week or next month or whatever it is, Trump wins the election. How did it happen? By what means does Trump win this election? Let's kind of unpack this for a little bit. Audie. Well, I think that our, our, our understanding of the voter turnout distribution is, is upside down. That in basically the rural areas and um, the, uh, in the suburban areas outside the cities, I don't think they've ever had particularly high, uh, uh, I mean, maybe even 60%. If those surge to 90%, um, that would be a huge surprise, and that would, that would explain it. Mm-hmm. I agree uh, with Adi that it's the degree of turnout. Um, I would also think that something that could dramatically affect things would be just, um, just in some sense, the, the polls. In other words, it could very well be that the polls are just uniformly wrong by a large margin, correlated way, and that in some sense, um, that's what affects the results of the election. It could just be that, that, that that's what it is. And it could be, as, as Adi said, it's not that something dramatically changed. It's just an alternative is that the data we're seeing right now is biased in some way that we just can't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. one thing keeps on saying. It's like, look, there's always era. If you knew what it was ahead of time, you'd fix it. So inevitably, what why, just before Shane goes, again, this is what I said. If you go to 538 simulator, and you look at their prediction, let's say it's something like 340 electoral votes. If you change Pennsylvania from blue to red, it doesn't drop to 320, it drops to 250. Because if the error, which they have Biden winning Pennsylvania on average by 4.7, if he, if Trump overcomes a 4.7% polling average in Pennsylvania, how much of a polling average is he going to overcome in these other close states? And that to me is... You know, that's why I think all of us, I'm not just looking at Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, which are the first three major swing states that we're going to know about. I'm looking for how accurate the actual 538 predictions were of those. Okay. So add into the polling bias, which I agree. So the polling bias makes it closer than we think it's going to be. And then, of course, with such a great proportion of the voting being mail-in, and the fact that places like Pennsylvania aren't allowed to ca- start counting that until today, it's going to look to the extent that it, the, the, essentially the voter proportion in Pennsylvania is a time series as they count. It's going to look pretty red to start with. And it's going to, you know, only get more blue as they keep counting votes. And legally, perhaps some ruling will come in where they have to stop counting votes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe the total number of people who vote for Trump is less than Biden in Pennsylvania. But, you know, he gets the early ones before they cut it off. So, again, kind of voter suppression shenanigans essentially wins the election for Trump. Okay, so we've been unpacking the conditions that might that if we if you told us Trump won, these are some of the factors we think might have led to that outcome. Now, rounding out the first quarter here, let's put some predictions on the table. This is something we do periodically, especially when the sports world is up and running, we put our judgments to pen and paper. So guys, let's hear some electoral college predictions and why. Let's go around the, let's go around the board. Shane first. Well, despite all that, <laughs> and despite, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the script on my own pessimism. 
I think Biden wins. I think Biden wins big. And uh, so as far as a vote, electoral um, a prediction, 370. Okay, 370. Why, why, where's the, that's your best bet. Why, why are you so um, Democratic favored there? I, I guess it is, you know, and it's a relatively simplistic narrative, but again, voter turn, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, what gives me, I think, optimism for the Democrats is just the incredibly high voter turnout uh, that I kind of predict. I think this will be a, a, a high voter turnout. And I, despite kind of some of the discussion that we've had earlier, I think that still does favor the Democrats in this Got case. Got it. You know, I, think, I think what to elaborate on what Shane said, I think that conditional on Biden winning the the maximal um, the the modal if you will the most likely outcome is a big victory, right? So if you I mean there's this all this probability it's spread out everywhere but it actually peaks around 400. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually so if so if the on the other end if Trump wins he's going to win by such a squeaker you can't even I mean it's just it's nothing right so and that's almost a certainty if Trump wins he wins by a tiny bit but if Biden wins he's likely to win by a lot so Shane's forecast is pretty darn good yeah. um, but if I'm Trump win, if Trump wins he's going to win by one supreme court justice vote is actually what what's <laughs> well, that, that that's just reiterating your your previous forecast no, no, yeah. no, Shane, I think you're overstating it especially after all we've said about what is unknown and the flaws in the polls and the uncertain the unusual circumstances of today I, I think there's definitely a world out there, given what we don't know, where right. he can win the vote. But I'm, I think win, win legally. Yeah, no, it's true. It, it could happen. I, I think I think your modal forecast is extrajudicially. You know, I, I'm not sure what is our what is our evaluation system? Are we getting awarded by the distance between the actual value and our forecast squared? Or are we just yeah, getting is it closest to it wins? I mean, that's the problem with talking to a probabilist about about prediction. It's price is right. You're you're punished if you go over. You're punished if you go over. Right, right. I'm going to go with the smaller number. I'm going to go with 310. Okay, 310. Great. Eric. So the way I did it was that Clinton got, uh, Hillary Clinton got 232. I think Wisconsin and Michigan are pretty clear. So I think that gets to 258. There's this Nebraska second district gets you to 259. So that's, in my view, almost the bare minimum that. Biden could get, which is Adi's and Shane's point that if Trump wins, like the, the most he'll get, I think, is 280, is somewhere in that range, 281. Mm-hmm. So I'm predicting that Biden will win Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida. So that gets him to 64. That gets him to three. I'm going to guess 320, 330. All right. 330 from Eric. Now, what is the rationale for going with those states to Trump? Well, it's pretty much uh, Pennsylvania is um, on 538. There's a 4.7 average, except for one poll, which is was dubiously rated by 538. Biden has not led in the last 15 polls by anything less than six points in Pennsylvania. So the stability of those polls, there's not one of them that shows that Trump is actually close or winning in Pennsylvania. And that's number one. Two, Florida, um, they're showing a plus two point six percent for Biden, which has also been pretty stable. Um, if anything, it grew over the last couple of weeks. And I think there's going to be massive turnout in Florida. Um, North Carolina, I think also has been trending. I put I, I was going to give North Carolina or Georgia or both. They're both basically the same number of electoral votes. And so um, I'm, I'm just going by what I'm seeing in 538. But I'm also this is the other comment I wanted to make. Go back to your earlier question about what we could be wrong. I'll use your example, uh, Kate, from from football. 
we didn't put enough weight on the priors. So a, a Democrat hasn't won Arizona in years. Um, Obama took North Carolina once, but lost it the other time. A Democrat hasn't taken Georgia in 30 years. Um, Florida, Obama took it, I think, once, maybe twice, but no other Democrat has really taken it in a while. Democrat hasn't won Ohio in a very, very long time. And so, you know, it, here's another rationale. We're putting too much weight on the observed season and not enough weight on the priors. That almost certainly has to be the case. Um, I, you know, but then is the observed season, the observed season isn't without noise as well. So maybe it's going to come in different, but that, that's a very good check on us. It's good. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to put my, Adi, I know how the reward function actually works. It's the closest, it's the closest amongst us. We're not going to pay on means. Okay. Yeah. So what is my op, what is my incentive? My incentive is to go just the other side of Shane because he's highest right now. And I'm going to claim all the space above you with a, with a, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you a little space. I'm going to go big. I'm going to go 380. I like, I a hundred percent agree with Adi. If you look at the, the potential distributions, the modal outcome is north of 400, but, and it's because these things move in a systematic way. And my, I've got a couple of quick thoughts on this one. There is quite a bit of uncertainty in this election, given how unusual the circumstances are. Uncertainty in presidential elections tends to break systemically one way or the other. It's not the typical uncertainty that kind of collapses around the best guess. It it's lands one way or the other. So if you think, well, there's a lot of uncertainty, it's going to break systemically, which side do you think it's going to break on? It just seems to me far more likely to, to side with the Dems than the Republicans based on what Trump won on four years ago and what's happened since then. And it's hard to imagine. And we do have data. We have data from 2018. Yeah, right. 2018 went that way already. That's exactly right. And that was with significant less, significant less voter turnout. But, you know, imagine how many Clinton-Trump combinations we see versus Trump-Biden combinations. And it's, it's just, it's a little hard to picture given, if nothing else. I mean, migration, immigration, maybe that's neutral. Um, Black Lives Matter, matter, maybe that's neutral. But it's hard to imagine looking at the pandemic and the economy. I mean, every model you could ever generate for who wins the presidential election puts a huge weight on the economy. Those things aren't going to break neutrally. It was a matter of tens of thousands of vote in select states in 2016. A little break in the other way is going to flip a, a lot of states kind of quickly. And so I'm going to go ahead and make the more provocative, maybe imprudent prediction that it's a pretty big win. And I'm going to claim the top, the top of the distribution with the three. All right, guys, that's a little on coronavirus and a little on the election on this big day in the United States. It will be, we'll be coming to you tomorrow morning and then next week we'll have a live uh, evaluation of how everything went down. But we've still got some sports to talk about. We've still got three quarters. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. After talking election and a little bit of COVID, we're going to go to the warm, safe, cozy place of sports. Gentlemen, we got the whole crew here, Adi, Shane, Eric, this is Cade. We are, you know, almost a week now removed from the World Series, but we haven't met since the World Series was over. So the Dodgers took it in six, but they didn't do it without an analytics brouhaha. So uh, there's a little pitching change in game six, a seemingly decisive pitching change. But let's talk about the game in general and the World Series in general, the championship. Where, where did you guys end up on 
on the baseball season? I'll go first. Um, I don't get it. And so let me say why. <laughs> Let's imagine a simple model of behavior, which I'm not convinced some of the analytics hasn't done, which is, let's assume what we, I, Adi knows about us, Shane, you guys have both done research yeah, Eric, on this. Eric, Eric, if you're diving into the smell thing, you better set it up because everybody was listening. Has okay, so let me just set it up. It's game six of the World Series. Blake Snell, who's been the number one pitcher on the Rays this year, um, had pitched five and a third innings. 73 pitches. 73 pitches. Which is not very many, right? Nope. He had pitched through the lineup twice. So he had faced 18 batters. Let's understand the minimum is 16 you could face in five and a third innings. He had faced 18 batters. Um, he was about to come back to the top of the lineup. The first three guys in the top of the lineup had each struck out twice, by the way, against him. So they were literally 0 for 6 with six strikeouts. <laughs> and the Rays were up at the time, um, I believe, one nothing or 2 to 1. I just don't remember the exact score. One nothing. One, one, nothing. one nothing. One nothing. Yeah, yeah, because they lost three to one. Yeah, they were up one nothing in the game. And so the way I view it is that pitchers, not necessarily with equal weight, they have a bimodal distribution. Sometimes you get the good day. Sometimes you get the bad day. It's hard to predict in advance whether you're going to get the good day or the bad day. Matter of fact, some pitchers tell the story, they warmed up great. Then they got out to the mound and they sucked. I think it was pretty clear we had the very good day from Blake Snell going. And so now the question is. Yeah, well, you're about to ask you the question. On a good day, at some point, that's going to transition from good day, got it, and good day, tired. So on a good day, what's the likelihood of that transition happening at at pitch 73 or pitches 74 through 90? Well, what's interesting, Adi may know the actual data on this. I don't believe Blake Snell had pitched the entire season more than six innings. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't throw 100 or 110 pitches in a lot of those. And so, but you're right, Kay, the right question is, when was he going to transition out of the hot state? But there was no evidence in the fifth inning, or sixth inning, where he was still pitching, that his speed had gone down, that his, I mean, there was one man on base. And that was a solid ball. That was a solid hit. It was one, but it was a solid hit. Is that not enough evidence? No, that inning was a blue pit. That was hardly a solid. It was hit. a blue. It was a blue. And, 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 and I mean, blue. as far as evaluating whether he was tired or not, I mean, maybe the number of pitches is the right unit to use. As far as pitcher effectiveness, I think probably the, some of the rationale for uh, th- that that decision is that the unit should be kind of the number of times the batters have seen him right this this kind of narrative that like the third time through the order is when things t- on average tend to typically fall apart for even the best pitchers mm-hmm. and i think that was the rationale they were using that was the rationale. let me just say i mean i i wasn't i was listening guys i was actually listening real time and the radio guys were talking all about that decision real time Third time through the order was prominent in the conversation. And I think it's kind of amazing that it's emerged. It's emerged since we started this show. When we started the show, I don't no, think. No, 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 Kate, actually, it, it was first talked about in, in the book. Um, the, the book, baseball um, managers historically refer to, what does the book say? And so uh, Mitch uh, Lichman and uh, Tom Tango wrote a book. There might even be a third author called The Book. And they actually went and uh, analyzed a bunch of um, decisions historically and they talk about it in in the book although i've only read the baseball perspectives article they claim that the third time through the order the there's a big bump in pitcher ineffectiveness the batters get much better the third time 
They actually get better the second time too, um, but the third time especially. And that has become the analytics wisdom. And that's why the, the, um, the, the announcers have been talking about it because they've been schooled in some of this new analytics thought. Yeah. So yeah. the reason why, I mean, and Blake Snell had been observed, was observed to have lost a couple miles an hour in his fastball. Um, he hadn't pitched more than six innings all season. Um, he generally doesn't get to see the third, the third, the third time through the lineup because they yank him pretty early. But what I did was I wanted to check to see whether that's true. I mean, these things, first of all, these change. We don't, as far as I could tell, um, no one's done this, hasn't studied this thing in a long time. And the third time through it. You want to see time, and one of the things that, that I really was wanted to understand was there's a huge confounder in all this, which is the third time through the order, you're much more likely to spend the composition of batters that you face in the third time is overwhelmingly the top of the order because pitchers are, are pulled so early. They tend to get pulled sometime in the middle of the third time through, which right. means that you expect them on average to be much worse the third time through because they're facing better hitters. And in fact, that's exactly what you see. You see a big bump in the third time through but after you control for that, and that's what I did, and I tweeted that out, there's no difference. The, bat, the pitchers are no bit worse the third time through than they are the second time through. But I will say they are much worse the second time through than through the order than the first time through. And uh, I'm actually working on this with some students right now to, to really push it. I'm, I'm doing some random effects models so we can account for the pitcher, varying in pitcher quality. And uh, We'll, we'll have some better results on that by next week, maybe. How much weight do you put on the fact that these three batters were 0 for 6 with six strikeouts yeah. against them? Uh, not too much. Uh, not too much. That's the momentum theory. Um, that's the, the hot theory. Um, and, uh, and so I'm actually I, – I don't put that much much credence on what about just What about just matchups? I mean, if he's already demonstrated that – are matchups a thing? And are – I mean – well, there's things that are very important. There's righty-lefty matchups and that, that can be very specific, um, and those do matter. And I, I don't think they went in the right direction. I think the person who replaced Snell just didn't seem to have any substantive evidence that he was going to be even remotely as good as even a week Snell. Yeah, well, no, and I, I mean, that's the part that I think is, is also, I mean, given that they were going to replace Snell, like that they, they maybe had made an a priori decision that Snell was not going to see the third time through the order, you know, given the relief crew that they have on hand, why they chose to replace him with one of their relievers that was had demonstrated the least amount of kind of effectiveness, at least in the playoffs, yeah. is, is another mind blowing part of that entire decision. Yeah. I just want to I just want to underscore Adi's empirical observation. It's it's yet another example of oh, there's some selection problems in the data, and the, this third time through thing is driven by the fact that you're only observing the pitchers pitch against the best part of the order, then they probabilistically get pulled at some point and reliably probabilistically face the weaker batters less often. And so this, when this, this, their, their performance in the third time through is biased towards the worst, the, the toughest hitter. It is. That's that, right. That's a, it's a wonderful example of a selection thing. It's also, I mean, not to toot our Wharton Moneyball colleagues horn too much, but it's a wonderful example of taking conventional wisdom, even in this case being analytics conventional wisdom, right? And has anybody even looked at it lately or they have they looked at it rigorously? So it's neat. And I don't think the story's over. I know you're digging deeper into it. And we need to know things like, you know, you say they're a lot worse the second time through. How big an effect is that? But it's a wonderful refinement of, of, of something that's become quite, you know, generally accepted at this point. And had this big, it seemed to have a big consequence in the 
in the World Series. So that's baseball. I mean, props for pulling off the season, right? I tell you what, we're going to talk about it next quarter, but college football, there are corners of college football that are going to have a hard time replicating. And we always said college was going to be tougher, but it looks like it's going to be harder for them to replicate. I think one, just one thing, you know, we all forecasted whether or not there'd be championships. And I know I was meaningful, uh, meaningful championships, meaningful championships, and three sports have had them. Uh, they're very correlated, though. So my, if uh, conditional, I knew that one sport was going to pull it off. I would, I would massively up up my uh, probabilities on the other. Baseball, I gave the lowest probabilities to, mm. and so props to baseball to finish. Um, I expected NF- the NBA to finish, um, and, and I'm hockey. now, now uh, quite hopeful that the NFL will finish. But tell us why. What's the source of correlation across? the success of sports making it through in pandemic time? It's a stomach for having cases. It's just basically the, 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 uh, the league's kind of ability to deal with it. And uh, I mean, when baseball closed down and then they came back up, um, you know, a week later and they just went out there and kept playing, uh, I think all the sports are going to have been doing it. Okay, what, what else? Shane and Eric have reactions to this as well. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I, if, 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 if you told me conditionally that basketball had its championship, I would not have updated my baseball prediction yeah, very much at all. Uh, because, I, I, you know, I think basketball and hockey, you know, uh, baseball, basketball and hockey were very highly correlated because they took a very similar strategy to how to handle COVID. They bubbled up. And, I, you know, that would have not necessarily, you know, changed my confidence in baseball. Baseball having happened – gone through does change my prediction a little bit for the football because they are do, both doing kind of a non-bubble just kind of suffer through it kind of strategy yeah. um and so and so yeah i guess that the, there is some updating that would happen there I, you guys may remember better than i do i just don't i just, just a factual question did we know the bubble strategy for all of the parties when we made our predictions. I don't remember knowing that because I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think we did. And that would change dramatically what my predictions would have been. Certainly we did not know because I think they only came up with it like mid season that they planned a bubble for the, uh, for most of the baseball playoffs. No, like that, that kind of baseball. that so bubble for the hockey was bubbling and, and NFL was bubbling in the way they were. I don't, I don't recall. And, and but the, the main point is that, that changes the estimates. That changes yeah. the public. I mean, on the other hand, baseball got it done without a bubble, which is pretty remarkable. And football seems to have quite a bit of luck, professionally way, having some luck with that. Guys, one more topic I want to hit on before we go to break. Daryl Morey is coming to town. Daryl Morey, new president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. I mean, one, we can be excited about Daryl being in town. What about the Sixers? Eric, you're the season ticket holder. Did your prices just go up? What's going on? Well, my prices went up last year, by the way, a tremendous amount. So I don't think they're going up again. But what I I wanted to say, it'd be very interesting to see what Daryl Morey thinks about Ben Simmons. The guy can't shoot a three. He is not that great a shooter from the field. He takes a small number of shots for someone that plays his position. And so the question is, how is analytics going to treat Ben Simmons. Now, let me say the good news, which is why I don't think he'll get traded. It turns out he's number two in the league in creating three-point shots for others and space. And they know this because of motion tracking data. So he penetrates to the hoop and he's a great passer. And so he kicks it out. So he creates open threes for others. So maybe when we're thinking of, you know, three is 50% more than two, we should say, yeah, but there are social interaction effects and Simmons creates them for others. 
Yeah, that's really that's really interesting, and that's taken us. If if you expect anybody to get to that next level of analysis, you'd hope that it would be Daryl because he's been on this for so long. But it reminds me of an exchange we just had on Twitter this afternoon, where there's videos of Pat Mahomes kind of pump faking um, his receivers open, and people people complain, you know, they, they get tired of the hype about Mahomes because he's always throwing to receivers who are so wide open, and Andy Reid gets a lot of credit for that. But there's also maybe a few things that Pat Mahomes does to get his receivers open. And if you're going to discount his passing accuracy because his receivers are open, where are you giving him credit for the opportunities he's creating somehow, whether it's pump faking mm-hmm. or getting people off with his eyes. And this is a real challenge for sports analytics in general. We, we, we're getting so good at measuring the situation and discounting people for the situation, good or bad. We're not yet to the point where players get credit for affecting that situation, creating that situation. And what you're talking about with Ben Simmons is, okay, fine, he's not a scorer, but if you look really deeply in the data, he's an opportunity creator by the way he demands space and delivers the ball. And that's really the next generation of sports analytics. It's it's not converting opportunities. We're getting really good at analyzing converting opportunities. We need to get better at creating opportunities and changing these game situations. All right, fellas, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. An election eve episode. This will be posted election. No, this is election day. It's election results eve episode. We'll be posted on Wednesday. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Talked COVID and election in the first quarter. Talked baseball and a little bit of Daryl Morey in second quarter. Final quarter, we're going to talk Bruce Feldman, college football analyst. We've got a few minutes here to talk football, guys. But before we get to football, some some of our some of our darling secondary sports, tennis and golf. Just real quickly, Eric, what do you got on tennis? I don't know. I know where you're going on golf. Well, I'll just start quickly. I I'm sorry, just tennis quickly. Um, I'm wondering if we're starting to see the bimodal distribution for Novak Djokovic, who's the number one player in the world. And here's what I mean by that. So in his last two matches, he got absolutely. I understand it's at the French but he got absolutely destroyed by Nadal in the finals. And then he played a couple matches where he squeaked through, and then he lost to this guy, Sonega, the number 45 in the world, 6-1-6-2. Now, I understand we all have bad days, but I'm just wondering, are we now going to start to see the same thing I've said? Some days Roger Federer looks like 20-time champion Roger Federer, and other days he looks like number 20 in the world. And that's not bad, but it's not Roger Federer. I'm wondering, I'm predicting that in 2021, the age 34 year for Novak Djokovic, we're going to start seeing the bimodal distribution for Djokovic. This is like the Bradlow theory of uh, decline, age-related decline in sports, is that it's increasingly kind of fragile or bimodal. For some days, you look like the old guy, the old champion, but infrequently, you look like the near retiree. So Djokovic, maybe... Um, on the other hand, it could be, you know, it could be mental laughs. It could be down. He's got, he's had some ups and downs this year. So we'll see. It's an interesting story to follow. Uh, on golf, the, of course, the thing we're coming up on is Masters in the middle of November of all things. So this is what we'll talk about next week because it's the weekend after next. But it's really kind of a neat thing coming up. Also, by the way, College Game Day is going gonna, is gonna to be from Augusta National. That's fantastic. So we're trying to sneak a little bit in ahead of time because it's one of the most fun golf events to follow. 
you're, you, you posted some odds here for, and no surprise, DeChambeau is the favorite coming in. But what else you got on early thinking about Masters? Well, just quickly, the thing that's interesting about DeChambeau is that, you know, the best golfers in the world now get their ball speed up to about 120, 130 miles per hour. He says he can get it up to 200 now. And they asked him his over-under on his longest drive at the Masters. By the way, the Masters, while the greens are horribly tricky, it's a pretty wide open course. He says he can hit his drive over 400 yards now. So his plan is to just bomb it out there. And as we've talked about, um, Shane Jensen's hitting an eight iron, six iron to the green. Bryson DeChambeau's hitting a pitching wedge to the green. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a 350 yard par four. Bryson DeChambeau is reaching the green. Other people, you know, so he's going for high length, high variance, and, you know, 100 yards from the green, way to the left, way to the right, could be just as good as 100 yards from the green in the center. So Augusta National is one of the, one of the major golf championship courses most amenable to that. You might put St. Andrews on that list. It's kind of surprising to some people that these famous, famous courses actually are open, open kind of open to long hitters. Um, so that'll be an interesting story to follow. Uh, let's talk a little. Let's talk a little football. Let's start with college. And on the COVID front, we're seeing some big stuff happen. So Wisconsin just announced today that they're canceling their second game in a row. They canceled their second game of the season against Nebraska last weekend because of an outbreak on the team, and now they just canceled their third game, second in a row with Purdue. They have 27 active cases, 15 among players, and 12 among staff. And this is—it's such a shame because the, you know the Big Ten held it off until this late on the hope of getting protocols in place and being maximally safe. And now we're seeing a major college program really having an already compromised season, compromised even further. We hate to see it. Clemson, you know, number two in the country, a favorite to make it to the finals. Number one player in the, in the country, number one draft pick, anticipated Trevor Lawrence. He's been, he's out going into the second week in a row. He's going to miss a game. And this one against Notre Dame, which was the big ACC game of the year, Clemson versus Notre Dame. And one of the only chances really people gave for Clemson to get knocked off. So presumably those chances are better, but maybe they can still squeak by without, without the quarterback. Uh, what else in college football has put you in this game? Well, the thing I noticed, you had to notice, was uh, Texas beat Oklahoma State, the team I was hoping would make the college football playoffs. To me, I mean, I've seen the odds anywhere. I'm, I'm sure Massey Prebody has looked at this maybe – they're down to like one or 2%. There's not going to be a big 12 team in the college football playoff this year. I a hundred percent agree with that. And I, you know, we, we've been talking about Oklahoma state all season because on the one hand they were undefeated. On the other hand, they hadn't really done that much. They are probably one of the better clubs, one of the better teams they've had in a while. They've got a real defense for the first time. Well, and they deserve to win the game. There's no way Texas deserved to win that game. You know, uh, Bill Conley runs post-game probability. So based on the stats he sees that he usually uses to predict games, after the fact, if you see these stats, what do you say the probability of team one was? And it was 3%. Texas had a 3% chance, given Bill's numbers, of winning that game, which is the lowest It's the lowest of anybody all season. And I love that exercise. We should do that for – we should do that. I don't know if it's on the air, but we should post something on at W Moneyball. I love that idea of looking at the box score or some set of statistics and trying to predict the outcome. That's a great exercise to do, by the way. So Eric, we do it. Uh, we do it from, we've done it for Massey Peabody for years. We'll give you game grades. We call them game grades. We, we do it. In fact, I'll, give me a minute. I'll dig up this past weekend's game grades. I don't know if we have Monday night. I don't know if you want to know the Bucks game grade from last night. Uh, <laughs> Adi, Adi, what do you got? 
I'm going to point out that when we first began our show, I don't know how many years ago it was now, it was right around World Cup soccer. And one of the observations I had made was that there's no good box score for soccer. And the, the measure, the metric that we were using was given the box score, how well can you predict the outcome of the game? And, uh, and it's really interesting to revisit these, the, that, that, that kind of paradigm today, given how much more we know, particularly about sports um, like soccer, for which the box scores aren't particularly representative. And we know so much more about football. Um, the box score in football, remember, you can't, use, uh, you can't really use yards. I mean, you have to think about it. What do you mean by, I guess you could use yards. You can't use points, right? Because that's cheating. That, I can always predict who wins if I know how many points you scored. So it can't right. be that. You have to use something else, right? That's right. You use all the fundamentals. And mm-hmm. uh, I do think it's a good exercise. So, for example, I think we don't have Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay game in here. Um, but the, from the Sunday games, top-rated um, score after the fact was KC over New York Jets, which is not, not New York Jets. Not terribly surprising. Um, it's a good exercise. So that's on the college side. The, the most interesting thing coming up on college is that the Pac-12 is finally joining the party. They have been the la- they will be the last entrance of the of the of the of the um, of the Power Five conferences, and uh, they've got a couple of teams out there that USC is finally getting their program back. At least people think they will be. Oregon was going to be a national contender. They've lost a lot of players this season, but um, they've got a few teams that are worth keeping an eye on. The question for those guys is: Can you make it into the national conversation with the seven-game slate? And, and so even a seven and zero, how is that going to be compared against you know say, you know an eight and two Florida who's played nothing but but a Big Twelve team, I mean the SEC teams. So, but it's going to be fun to have them back in the in the conversation. It's been great to have the Big Ten back. It's such a it's such an odd year, but at least we've got some football to watch. All right, guys, what about on the pro side? What from this last weekend cut your eye? Well, if you want to kind of talk about uh, kind of game score versus actual outcome. The Rams-Dolphins game was fascinating. I mean, Dolphins ended up winning it. But, I mean, again, if you looked at the box score of that game, you would have thought that the Rams would have walked away with it. Yeah. So, that was notably, that was Tua's first game as a starter. Mm-hmm. He gets the win, but it was a pretty middling performance. Maybe as a first game it wasn't so bad, but it was kind of a, you know, kind of a whatever performance. But they managed to knock off the Rams – um, Adi, you were going to jump in here with something. Yeah, I was, you know, as, as those people who've been listening to me know that Jets have been my favorite team forever. They're disappointed. They're, they're, they were underdogs, by, but to KC by, by a, a one in a thousand frequency. They're, I mean, it's some of the biggest, most lopsided matchup in, in NFL history. There are only nine games since they've been producing spreads that have been bigger than the spread for KC versus exactly. the Jets. And they couldn't come close to covering. It was pathetic. Well, well they were looking okay at halftime. <laughs> they, they, it was just the second half got away from them. Matter of fact, there was a time, I don't know if they were leading, but the spread was maybe 20-something, and they were down, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 at the half. So it wasn't – they had a bad second half. They did. Well, we see I – mean, Kansas City, we, they were everybody's darling coming into the season. We've been a little slow because we think they've been, they've been kind of underperforming what, what they've done in the past. But New, New, they finally jumped over New Orleans. With that performance, even against the Jets, they have finally jumped over New Orleans to have the number one spot in, in the Massey Peabody ranking. Yeah, the only thing I want to comment on back to Shane's point about the Dolphin Ram game, maybe even I'll, it could relate to the Bucks um, uh, yeah. Giants game from last night. The Giants lost that game because Daniel Jones threw two really bad picks in that game. The Rams lost that game. Goff fumbled at the 10-yard line. 
They also had a kick return for a touchdown, the Dolphins. That's 14 points, essentially, you've given the other team right there. Last time I checked, please correct me if it's not. Maybe it's true in Massey Peabody. It's not. This is hard to predict because turnovers are highly variable. But last time I checked, if you're minus two in the turnover battle, your odds of winning the game, you might as well count it like a, an extra six to seven points on the spread. And so the the you know, uh, Brady didn't turn it over. The Bucks didn't turn it over. As a matter of fact, Brady hasn't thrown an interception now in 190 straight passes. And that's going to win you a lot of football games. No, I mean, that's a great point. I, 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 get, I, I would be interesting to just look across all previous NFL games. What is more predictive of winning the game? Like winning the game being, you know, the team that is ahead in the turnover battle or the team is ahead in yardage battle. And it's, it, I, I don't actually know that for a fact. I mean, obviously both of them are going to be correlated, but which, which one, one is more predictive? The, what's the, what's the, what's the equivalence essentially? So how many turnover, what's the turnover right. difference that's equal to the yardage difference? And yeah. what would you guys guess? I would guess, I mean, it, it might be, it's going to be pushing hundred yards. Is it 75 yards? Per yeah, time? probably. Probably. It's a pretty big exchange. Well, here um, we go right here. Matt just put something up here. Uh, last year, teams that had a positive turnover edge were 151 and 46. And they were also 78.6% against the spread. Yeah. So this is, I mean, the thing is, are, how, pers- how predictive are turnovers? Is this, is, is how predictable do you mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. How predictable yeah. is the propensity to give or take turnovers a trait of a team? Because what happens is coaches know these things, and so they obsess on them. And I sometimes wonder whether that's the right. I mean, I, I, I think a large – I don't think turnovers are particularly predictable. I think certain players obviously are somewhat prone to turnovers. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is something that is kind of predictable. And, and certain players like, you know, I mean, again, the, the Bucks, you know, going from Jameis Winston to Tom Brady has got to be kind of a, like a maximal difference in kind of turnover proneness that w- probably we've seen in NFL history. Well, you're bringing up Cam Newton fumbling uh, yeah. on a late drive in Buffalo against Buffalo. They're going down to, 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 to possibly win the game. And he's definitely had his struggles up there. I mean, to what extent do you think we're getting insight into this longstanding quandary about who was responsible for the Pats dynasty? How much the relative contribution of Belichick versus Brady? Are we getting much insight into that from the separation of these two guys? I mean, the Pats are really suffering and the Bucks are are rolling. But yeah, my take on this, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I, I think in terms of going into this season, I think, Brady's legacy was more vulnerable than Belichick's was like, I think a lot more people viewed Brady as kind of a product of a Belichick system. Um, And so like Brady's success this season, I think has been very important to sort of his legacy. Um, I I personally don't think it's it, 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 the, the kind of relative poorness of, you know, uh, new England's performance is going to really affect Belichick very much. Um, I think, you know, I mean, there's been obviously a lot of COVID involved with New England, a lot of injuries, et cetera. Um, I do think that this is kind of exposed a little bit. One thing people are definitely talking about, and I think it's justified, is, is, is Belichick's certainly recent drafting history is, is, is undergoing a lot of scrutiny, and it does not look particularly positive. Oh, I think he's been overrated as a drafter for a long time. He does yeah. a lot of stuff. He's obviously brilliant, genius, Hall of Fame, all that stuff, but yeah. drafting hasn't been the way that he's done. 
Well, Agreed. I just want to follow up. I think I think I, I agree with just about everything you said. I think Brady is certainly cementing his legacy um, with what he's doing with Tampa Bay. But I think um, Belichick is in a little more precarious situation. Not yet. But if this thing accumulates for a couple of years, that could really hurt him mm-hmm. for, a, yep. for a long time. The only thing I was going to add to it, Audie, what you said is we actually know Belichick has had a bunch of bad seasons. He coached Cleveland before he coached New England. He didn't have a huge amount of talent there. He was not a winning coach. Remember, he, he, there was a time in between him being let go at Cleveland and then him going back. Now, you could say, well, he's the, a better coach now than he was. Give him some room to improve. And yeah, and, and also I'll just kind of push back briefly. Didn't he win a playoff game with Cleveland? Which is a monumental. Which I, which I don't think they've done that since. I mean, he I mean, they obviously weren't real contenders, but I just want to talk about also quickly one play in the Patriot game that unless I was watching it wrong and unless they were wrong in the field, I'm pretty sure happened. And I have no explanation for from an analytics perspective. There's 12 seconds left in the half, first half. The Patriots are at the nine yard line of the um, Bills. And it's third and one. They kick the field goal. Now, someone has to explain to me why with 12 seconds left, it might have been 15 seconds, it's third and one from the opposition nine-yard line. What the announcer said is, wow, Belichick has no faith in Cam Newton that he's not going to have a really negative play here. Let's just take the three points. Does anyone think, like I did, like I was watching this and saying, this, like it's got to be fourth down, right? No, it was third and one with twelve seconds left. Did they not have any timeouts? I yeah, forget that. They had timeouts. That's un- unbelievable, and that, it's hard not to infer something. Maybe both Bill Belichick and Tom Brady have tr- are having trouble remembering how many downs there are now. Maybe this is something that they oh, needed each other as a check on. I thought about that explanation. So, what about the one of the mark probably the marquee game weekend was Pittsburgh and Baltimore, and it was a tight game. Um, Pittsburgh came away holding on to their undefeated record Ravens down to two losses and yet to get it done against the top teams they play. So increasingly there's this criticism that they, they're not elite enough to beat the elite, which is really how we know, at the, at, you know, whether a team is up to it. So what's your take on these two teams? I mean, I think that the, the I mean, certainly one way in which Baltimore, I think would acknowledge that they're oriented oriented is that they stay, they are a little bit more vulnerable to not being able to come from behind compared to other quote unquote elite teams. I think they're a little bit more by no, they're they're very elite if they have a lead, but much less elite if they do not have a lead. Um, So explain um, why is that true? Well, because, because so much of their uh, offensive like prowess is based on running, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I think basically, um, and and I do and I so so that 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 is one thing that I'm kind of taking yeah. out of this season. I still think that they are kind of under you know underrated. Like I saw for this upcoming week that they you know new um, five thirty eight essentially got them almost fifty fifty against Indianapolis, and I certainly would do not have that as my relative yeah. probability. Lamar Jackson, coming into the season, we talked about you know Mahomes is probably still improving, and so even if he regresses to the mean, it might be to an improving mean. We said the same thing about Lamar Jackson. It was his first full season as a starter mm-hmm. last year, yeah. probably still improving. If anything, based on the first half of the season, it feels like he's going the opposite direction. Why? I mean, you must agree, but why would that be? Why would a guy with so much room to improve yet, relatively new to the kind of game that he's playing there, go backwards? I'm going to have to follow up with a regression to the mean. I think we probably were – I mean – when someone does extremely well, 
even though they're young, you still have to imagine they're going to more likely to go down than up in their well, first there season. There be lots of reasons. One is um, it's a short time series, and last year was an aberration. So mm-hmm. it could be Check that he is improving, but we're, we've overestimated his play last year. Um, second could be he's getting poor coaching, so he has the potential to actually improve, but he's not being coached to improve. Third option is teams are starting to figure out how to play Lamar Jackson more, and therefore he's a great football player, but he's not yet a great quarterback. Mm-hmm. And so he still has to improve his pocket passing. Teams aren't letting him run as much, you know, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons from that point of view that you could point to. So uh, on the other hand, um, the, the Steelers continue to get it done, and now they've got the two-game lead in their division against the against the Ravens. The Steelers are up to number three in Massey Peabody rankings, by the way, season high, I believe, with the big jump this week. Ravens, on the other hand, lowest have been in at least a season, right? They're down to number six with a couple places dropped. Um, we've only got two minutes left, but let's look at the slate for this coming weekend. It doesn't look great. I mean, some games that we might have been really interested in, Green Bay and San Francisco look a lot different with San Francisco's injuries. Also, by the way, Green Bay, what the heck? They got beat by Minnesota. Big rival and a terrible team this year. Take down the Packers. Um, what else on the schedule, if anything, has your attention? Or is this a weekend to, like, go to the mountains and keep the TV on? Oh, Sunday night. I think you're going to want to be there for Saints versus Bucks. That's a great game, obviously. Very important. Rival, that is the game of the weekend. Talk, what is the lead, What is the line on that game? Let's kind of talk. I think, uh, I, I mean, I think it's like Bucks uh, by three or so. Uh, they're the home team. So it's basically, you know, split, you know, it's just the home field advantage, essentially, that gives you the, that, that spread. But uh, remind yeah. me, New Orleans won, was it week one? New Orleans won that game? So. That's right. New Orleans won the first game um, between them, between the two of them. So and obviously they've, uh, you know, I mean, they've, I mean, the Bucks we've, as we've discussed, have been kind of up and down, you know, game to game. The Saints have as well. I mean, they've been winning a lot of close ones, uh, but Breeze hasn't looked all that impressive, but they've still been winning. So actually yeah. I'm seeing the line at Tampa Bay minus five and a half. Oh, okay. Wow. Tampa minus five and a half is really up there. We have New Orleans about three quarters of a point better on a neutral field. So it wouldn't, we wouldn't give it more than two or so. Um, and we've just got the last 30 seconds or so. Have you updated on the Bucks? Where are you on the Bucks? Where are you on that? Do you want to give five and a half points or do you like the Saints at that, at that big a number? I'd take the Saints at five and a half myself. But I, I wouldn't too. Eric, you're the Bucks fan here. What do you got? I like the Bucks in that game because I think I'm not – I'm, I'm totally not sold anymore on Drew Brees. He's the, he's the bimodal Drew Brees, and we're getting the other mode now. All right. Well, it'll be fun to see that one play out. Guys, that has been uh, the third quarter here. We're, we're done with, this, with, the, with, this, with the open segment. We're going to roll into the fourth quarter conversation with Bruce Feldman. Wharton Moneyball. You're going to be excellent in one sport. you got to go golf. You can <laughs> so play it for decades. That's a There's a you senior can tour. For, you can play it for There's 40. a tour for the people who aren't good at it anymore. Right, you can play for 45 years. Somebody else carries your equipment. Right. You're out in the sunshine. Yeah. If it rains, you get to go inside. I mean, what? <laughs> is there a concern about concussions in golf? No. I was is there a concern about anything? No. Wharton Moneyball. Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business Radio. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter, we have got a return guest to the show, one of our favorites, Bruce Feldman, is with us. Bruce is a longtime 
college football writer. You may have seen him on Fox Sports telecast, either sideline reporter for years or this year he's in studio. You may hear him on the podcast, The Audible, his partnership with Stu, Stu Mandel for long years. They've been running the best football podcast out there. Or you might have read him on The Athletic. He's a contributor there. In any number of ways, you can see Bruce Feldman covering college football. We're delighted to have you, Bruce. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, and, and thank you for the kind words. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. They're sincere. Um, you've also got a, a new book. You, among those many things, I don't know how you do it, Bruce. Mandel was just saying this on your show this week. He's like, I don't know how you do all these other things and then kick out a book every couple of years. So you've done a book on, uh, you've done a number of books, including Meat Market, which is kind of a predecessor to the current one. You're famous for a book on college football recruiting quarterbacks. And most recently, just released last week, Flip the Script, Lessons Learned on the Road to a Championship on Ed Ogeron, the head coach of the LSU football team. So congrats on the new book release. How has it gone this past week? What have you learned about what people are reacting to or what they like about the book? Um, it's gone pretty well. I mean, I'll be honest. It's, it was a book process. You'd mentioned, you know, Meat Market before. It was a book I did 13 years ago about college football recruiting and being kind of a fly on the wall of what goes on in a program. And Ogeron was the central figure in that. He's a larger than life character. Um, and really, I'd gotten asked a lot about, will you ever do a sequel to Meat Market? You should do a sequel to Meat Market, all that kind of thing. And I never really thought I would just because I didn't think it would be the right story to tell. And I didn't know if the access would be what I felt like I needed to make a, to, to really make a compelling book. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, I had been talking to Ogeron and he was like, Hey, I got this young assistant I just hired from the saints and he's brilliant. And there's some amazing stuff going on here. So I went down to Baton Rouge in April of 2019 and spent a week there and went to practices and sat in on the, all the meetings and spent a bunch of time with Joe Brady. And sure enough, I came away convinced, wow, they really do have something here. Now I did not know that they would have a national title team, but I thought they were way different than they had ever been. And so I started working on a book proposal that actually became flip the script. And, you know, one of the things that really jumped out at me, especially after they beat LSU, I mean, after they beat Alabama, it, it was the first time in such a long time for LSU to, to kind of overcome that mountain. I was like, wow, I got a book. And right. so I think people that had some momentum to it. Now, quite honestly, to write a book and release a book in the middle of a pandemic has its own unique challenges. And the book was initially supposed to be released the middle of July at SE, around SEC media days. Okay. But because everything that had gone on and there was uncertainty about when the season would start, if it would happen, uh, the publisher wanted to push the book back into later. And then what they ended up doing is pushing it back till October. So into late October, no less. So the timing has not, I'll be honest, has not been ideal in yeah. terms of that because, you know, it's not just that they were at the time, the defending national champs, but now they're a team that is struggling to replace basically almost their whole starting 22 and as well as defense coordinator and Joe Brady, who was not, who was the pass game coordinator. So I think that's, you know, that's been not the, not the optimum time to release this book, but the feedback I've gotten from a lot of people within football, a lot of different coaches and a lot of people who have already read it has been really glowing. And I appreciate that. So 
you know, it's, it's been an interesting process and um, you know, I'm really happy with the book and how it came together. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited for people to read it. Well, I, I hear you on it you know, kind of being unfortunately delayed, but I think it's this, they had such a remarkable season that it, and there's so much going on there. I think I'm glad there's a book written about it because I think there's a lot to mine and you know, we could just focus on the football side of things. And when you, when you get the book and you see the cover, you're kind of expecting, okay, there we were, you know, against Alabama or there we were that big game over Texas or there we are beating Clemson or whatever. But in fact, it begins with, it's really the story of coach. O. and can you tell us a little bit about that part of it? Because it is such an important part of the book. It's just his evolution as a, as a man and as a coach. Yeah. And that's what really drew me to the, to this, to doing this book because you're right. It, it is his evolution as a, as a person. And so you have a guy who, you know, when you're there at, for meat market, he, he recruited well, but he ended up not winning enough games. And he is basically in three years, it, it looks like a spectacular failure. He just did not win. And then Houston nut comes in and wins with his recruits. Right. And what I think was telling to me, because I, I was there for it, so I felt like I had a different perspective than people who just looked at the wins and losses, was he's a lot smarter than I think a lot of people gave him credit for. Mm-hmm. And yet, your record is what it is, right? There's a famous Bill Parcell line, you know, right. about that. And so I think the, the coming uh, you know, away from it, he, you know, there was frustration he had with his AD and there were certain things where do I, I don't have the resources to do what I think I need to do here. I didn't get enough time and all that stuff. But ultimately he realizes this starts with me. I need to change me. I was the biggest reason why this didn't work. And I think football coaches are notoriously incredibly stubborn people. Yeah. And sometimes it's to their credit. And a lot of times it's to their detriment. They can't get out of their own way. They've just so conditioned to do things a certain way. Right. And I think for him, because you got to remember, like, and this is the part to me that made it so compelling was I would argue no football coach anywhere in the sport has experienced the highest of the highs, mm. but also the depths of the lows that he has. Cause it wasn't just like a spectacular flame out at old miss when he was in his twenties he is a rising assistant on Jimmy Johnson's staff at Miami. They're winning championships. He's developing great players, but mm-hmm. his partying gets so out of control. He loses his job and has to go to rehab. And he ends up at John Lucas's rehab center in Houston. Mm-hmm. And he spends 45 days there. And there's a great story about him and John Lucas in the book. But I think because of that process, because, and anybody who knows anybody who has dealt with addiction and the struggles that come with that, there is a process that if you're going to make it work and, and, and grow from it, you got to really make some hard evaluations and a really blunt look at yourself. And because he went through that process and now he's been sober for 20 plus years, I think that gave him the perspective to go, okay, I need to, this is not working right. I, it's not going to be easy, but I need to make some critical evaluations and learn from my mistakes. And so he did that. And then mm-hmm. he, he's learned from Lane Kiffin's mistakes because he was Lane's right-hand man at Tennessee and at USC. And then mm-hmm. when he gets out at LSU, he kind of sees Lane Les Miles' mistakes and learns from them. So I think it was this constant evolution. And quite honestly, I think that, is a lot bigger than a football story. And it's a lot bigger than just a national championship story. And, and that really, the more I dug into it, the more I realized was there. And he, he was open to talk about it 
and to be reflective, which I think is really important. So that's why I just, you know, and I think the publisher kind of bought into that because they understood that story arc, why it was bigger than just this is a coach who put together a championship team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bruce, can you give us an example of where you think that openness um, and, and or humility, what, however you want to phrase it, where it made a difference with that 2019 LSU team? Was, was there a decision you would point to and say, I don't think the earlier version of him would have done that, or a lot of other coaches in that situation wouldn't have been open to that? Yeah, there's one. It's interesting because that moment where they beat Alabama, and it is such an exhilaration. They're in the post game in the visitor's locker room, and one of his players who's who is a starter uh, at some point pulls out his, his cell phone and takes a video of the, of what coach O is saying to the players and it shows up on Instagram. It wasn't the most, it wasn't anything vile, but it was, it was a profane speech about, you know, what you might expect from a football coach in a, after they finally beat the team that was going to form on their side. And so he had told me, you know, this is how I handled it. The player had come to him, was very apologetic and knew he screwed up. And he said, look, you know what? This is like, how would I deal with it if it was my own son? Keep in mind that this is not a player who got, you know, got drunk, got in a car and, you know, had a horrific accident that impacted lives, but it was, it was a bad judgment decision. And he said, you know, I talked to him and he understood, he felt really bad about it. And I was like, don't do it again. And, you know, I love you. And, Let's let's learn from this as if it was his son. And he said the old me, if he was at old miss, would have gone flown off the handle and it would have he, he goes, I would have probably it probably would have turned into a two day story. And then you're dealing with it and then you're dealing with the fallout and then there's the blowback. And then now all of a sudden the players are pissed off. And it's just like, what good would that have done? And so mm -hmm. I think his awareness and this I didn't know going in and then as we worked on the book it started to crystallize was the whoever you are you kind of are that but the the key and and this is something I really kind of took from the the reporting part of, of the book was the key is knowing that okay you still may have those same instincts and impulses and they're not always the most beneficial for you oftentimes we're working against ourselves but to have the awareness to go ah I can't do it that way because if I've done it that way before and it didn't go so well. So mm -hmm. to, to be able to guard against your less than wise instinct and impulses and, and turn it and whether you want to call that the flip the script part or not, that I think he has learned from. And I, that definitely played a big role in him getting a national title team going. That's so interesting. And those are general life lessons. I mean, we spend time in the classroom on, on, on a number of my courses on exactly that issue, like breaking the instinctive automatic response and trying to build in a little bit more agency over your behavior. It's interesting to hear you talk about a head coach that way. Shane Jensen has jumped in here and he's with us and he's got something for you. Well, I just kind of along that same lines, I kind of feel like a word that kind of pops into mind, you know, is, is, is kind of accountability. I think accountability is a hugely sort of important concept of just leadership in general. And I feel like maybe the, this life experience kind of gave him sort of, you know, you know, kind of this air of more accountability that I'm sure was something that was very helpful as far as trying to kind of motivate and, and get, get his team working for him. Yeah. And I think Shane, towards that point, like, you know, 
coaches, I feel like a lot of times feel like they're, they're out front and they're on an Island and yeah, they're going to, there may say something in their press conference where we got to coach them better, but ultimately it's like you hear about busts and missed assignments and things that the players maybe <laughs> didn't get conveyed. And I think one thing that he learned from his time, you know, at Ole Miss especially because at USC everything was going great. And when, you, when it was Ole Miss, it wasn't going so great. And the reality is, you know, we didn't coach them well enough. And, you know, it's my responsibility to either get the right players in who I feel like can do the job and learn what we're trying to convey to them. And if I didn't either A, get the right players or B, get, um, get the message across in a way where I didn't get it to my staff, you know, he felt like, I think one thing that was impressive to me was just being around the team that I noticed over time was there was a huge level of trust they had in trust in their system, trust in their, each other, trust in their players. So the team I saw, and I spent five years as a sideline reporter. So I would see a lot of great teams, whether it was Ohio state or Oklahoma, or you name it. Um, I would see them right before games and be on the sideline. And I'd never seen a team like LSU that the hour or 20 minutes before they're about to play Georgia for the SEC title game, they were incredibly loose, really focused and really confident. And they looked exactly like the team I saw Wednesday at practice. Wow. And that I think comes from, you know, what Shane said about accountability, but I think it also comes from trust because you know where everything is. And I mean, early on, and I'm talking, even this goes back to even the old Miss days. I remember like Ogeron, like, you know, most people associate him with Pete Carroll and to some degree with Jimmy Johnson, but he worked for Paul Pasqualoni at Syracuse and Paul Pasqualoni had a pretty big coaching tree of guys who were football guys. And I remember there's a story about Paul Pasqualoni where if like, if he hired somebody, a position coach and it wasn't going great, Paul Pasqualoni was on him to get that coach to be doing the job because it's his fault. You can't blame the coach. It was like, I was the one who made this decision. We have to make this work. And so I feel like, you know, there is an accountability that comes with that. And I think, you know, I think Ogeron grasps that because ultimately it's his job to make it work and find a way to let people be at their best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Bruce Feldman. Bruce is a longtime college football writer. He has a new book out last week. I believe it came out on Tuesday. Flip the script lessons learned on the road to a championship. Coach Ed Ogeron of LSU. Bruce, of course, at The Athletic, um, as well as Fox Sports and um, the Audible podcast. Bruce, we've been talking about Coach O. Of course, the book's about Coach O, but it also is about the season, this championship season for LSU, which was a lot of fun for a lot of reasons. You know, exciting team to watch. It was fun for somebody not named Alabama or Clemson to be in the final. So it was just a even, even for the fan of a team that got beat along the way, it was fun to watch. I'd like, I'd like to hear your thoughts on a couple of features of the team one was Joe Burrow I mean we just haven't seen a performance like that maybe ever and it and it came out of nowhere and I'm curious you've 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 written and I mean you've been around college football for a long time but you've actually written books about you know the quarterback market what if anything can we learn about assessing college football quarterbacks from the Joe Burrow experience of 2019 there's a few things so you know there's some great stuff in the flip the script about how Joe Burrow took over the team 
and the things he did at practice and the thing and the way he went about it. Now he's a coach's son and his older brothers played college football at Nebraska. And so he kind of grew up in it, but I think just his wiring is different and that's just kind of the way he was born. He doesn't have a huge arm. He's a good athlete. Like I think he runs better than people, you know, would give him credit for because he could it's third and seven and he could get 11 and, or it's, it's second and 10 and he can get the first down with his legs. But I think the things that, that really popped was how much, uh, how football smart he was, how decisive he was. Now, certainly mm-hmm. he's accurate. And I think that's something that is hard to develop. Either you kind of have it to some degree, you can get a little better at it. But I think the timing that he got down with his receivers and they worked hard to be, to catch the ball better and to be ready for the ball. But I think the way things came together late in his junior year about, even before Joe Brady about, look, he's more comfortable. He doesn't want max protect. He wants guys out. Mm -hmm. He wants, if he can get five guys out, that gives him more options. He can make quick decisions Mm -hmm. and he'd rather take his chances on that. than all of a sudden, you know, you have two receivers out. It's really clouded and, and it's just like, it's a, it's a passive way to, to go after a defense. That's the stuff that I think they realize he wanted. And he was very comfortable in that kind of system. And so I think they catered to it. And eventually um, they had a system in place where it was like, Joe, what do you like? Tell us what you want. And they trusted him enough. And his personality took over the team. I mean, you know, like the last, I don't know, four or five chapters of the book is really about building towards 2019 team. And I think you get a sense of, um, like I came away convinced the Bengals are going to get a lot better because they have this guy who is wired differently. I'm not saying like somebody had asked me this one after the book came out, would you rather have Trevor Lawrence or would you rather have Joe Burrow? Oh my. And oh my. I, now I know what I know about Joe Burrow. I've never been, a, I've been around Trevor Lawrence, but not at this level, not at that, you know, and right. Trevor Lawrence is a bigger athlete He's an even faster athlete and he's got a stronger arm. I still think I'd rather have Joe Burrow because I think he's the ultimate competitor. I just think he's wired so differently than, then it's not to say he's wired, you know, it's that he's going to go be a first ballot hall of famer, but I'm just convinced that as long as he's healthy and he has some semblance of a supporting cast, I think he is going to be a, a, an elite NFL quarterback. Well, you're, you're, you're emphasizing that it's, it goes beyond the physical traits and we, it's because they're hard to measure, it's easy to underweight them or underestimate them. And you're just loading up a little bit on that stuff because he seems to be unusual. And so far it's certainly translated very well. I'm no Bengals fan, but goodness, I, I, I've somehow turned into a big Joe Burrow fan. It's fun to watch those guys. Listen about kind of understanding intangibles. You're, you know, I know, Mandel gives you a hard time about how you know all the SNC guys and some of your stories start about, you know, ah, it's talking to the strength and conditioning coach. We, we happened to talk to a trainer down at LSU last fall. Um, Jack Jack? Maru- yeah. Jack. Maru- really, I would argue Jack is the smartest person who's working in college sports. Oh my gosh. Well, that's terrific to hear. You know, there was this glowing New York times piece about him. And so we jumped on it and talked because we're all about, you know, sports science mm-hmm. and what's going on, what's the cutting edge. And LSU just seems to be, at least last year, they were kind of, they seem to be kind of on the cutting edge of the things that they try down there. I mean, so all kinds of details. But for example, they put a, you know, a, um, a container, a container like you ship in, a shipping container with air conditioning units and, and bleachers on the practice field so that the 
players could step over, take a break and get their body temperature down. And they did that not to, you know, go easy on the players, but so they could train them harder. They could get caught up and then come back out and train. And it's that kind of innovation that really jumped out to us. You are around a lot of trainers and SNC folks. To what extent do you think some of those kinds of things gave LSU an edge and will they continue to give LSU an edge? Oh, I think it gave them a profound edge. I mean, Ogeron embraced the science, whether it was the GPS training and how their bodies were, which is kind of the opposite of what Les Miles was an old school, big and offensive lineman was thinking. And, you know, you would see the impact. And we have this in the book about how the LSU got worse in November, whereas his teams have gotten better in November because he's listened to the science and he's listened to the technology. And I think there's some stuff that Jack told me for the book about the character evaluations and these metrics that he created, um, you know, whether he, you know, he would have people who were behind the scenes people, but, don't, but like student trainers and sports information staff. And a lot of times the people who maybe don't, you know, like get people's full attention because they're like seen as like kind of you know, I, I, I don't want to make it in a demeaning comment, but there's not necessarily, it's not like it's one thing for you as an athlete to talk to the head coach or the athletic director a certain way. But when you see like a student trainer, sometimes those people get crapped on. Yeah. And so he was like having those people give their own evaluations of how they get treated because he thinks that's a real tell. And yeah. so there's really fascinating stuff in the book about how Jack has found applicable ways to gauge the character of a recruiting class and of a team. Mm-hmm. And he saw, he, he went back and looked at what he knew from the elite teams he was around at Florida State earlier in his career to the elite teams. He's been at LSU for a long time. And he's just this amazing outside the box thinker that, again, you know, I think he's brilliant. And, you know, like Ogeron realized it and he was like, he leans on Jack in ways that I can't imagine any other head coach leans on his trainer because Jack's not the ordinary trainer. Right, right. And again, it shows Coach O's openness in, in a way that, I mean, he, he brings in Joe Brady, makes him his passing game coordinator. No one knew who Joe Brady was at the time. He, he leans on Jack Marucci. He's got these crazy ideas, very anti-traditional yeah, guys, ideas. I, yeah, right around the national title game. And I don't know if this was like the day before. It was like in that time we were in New Orleans for the Clemson game. He had me come into, into like one of the rooms and Jack was in there. And they were talking about things for the 2020 you know, like going forward and decisions. And I was like, I can't imagine anybody brings in their trainer to, to at, pick his brain about these things. They might bring in the offensive coordinator or another on the field coach. But I was like, that's how much yeah. respect he has for Jack's mind and what Jack's data and analytics and, you know, metrics, you know, influences him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bruce, we've only got a few minutes left and I'd like to hear a little bit from you on coaching hires in general, you know, that you walk us through the stories and, you know, my gosh, Coach O had some ups and downs. And even with LSU, he was interim. He hadn't got the interim gig or he had the interim and didn't get the permanent gig at USC. It looked like it might go that way. Even at LSU, there was this, there was this contest for Tom Herman, the hottest hire of the moment at the time. It seemed like it was a contest anyway. And Texas hired Herman. So LSU hired O, or at least, and LSU hired Coach Ogeron. Herman now is in danger of Texas. It hasn't really worked out the way they thought it would, even though he was unanimous top candidate in that class year. Meanwhile, Coach Ogeron now has his book because he has a national championship and 
and what you'd have written the book about him anyway because he's doing so many interesting things. It's so hard. It seems so hard to make these hires. Why is this so hard, Bruce? You know coaches very well. You're very plugged in with this community. What can universities do to improve their hit rate, if you will? Well, I think it's it's certainly a a gamble because you're taking somebody from another place and then you're putting them into a completely different environment where the expectations usually are going to be way higher, which is certainly what the case is if you're going to one of these plum jobs, which LSU and Texas certainly are. I mean, if Ed Ogeron went nine and three, five years in a row, that's a that's a pretty good win percentage. He would be fired right <laughs> now. Tom Herman, in his case, there wasn't much of a track record. He was a head coach at Houston for two years. So, you know, he basically goes in there and he wins with somebody else's recruits and, you know, has a great first year. The next year wasn't actually that great. Um, But Tom was a hot name because he's a really sharp guy and he had helped Ohio State win a national title and did a really good job as a coordinator there. And I think he... Um, and I don't want to say he's marketed himself because I don't think that's fair to him, but I just think there is a, a cutting edge, high energy guy that, you know, he's the opposite of in a lot of ways, even though he worked under Mac Brown, he felt like the opposite of Mac Brown in a lot of ways. And so there was, I could see why there was buy-in. He had roots to Texas when it was good, but all, and he coached in the state of Texas a long time, even though he's not from there. And so I could see on the paper, but it is definitely a gamble, right? I mean, Kevin Sumlin won big at Houston as well yeah, and had some, certainly some success at Texas A&M, but it's like, you know, you should be winning at Tech at Houston. That place is, is positioned really well to, to be one of the best group of five programs. And so I think that was the, the challenge. And I think the question is with Tom, you know, how much do you get, you know, like at Texas, cause we've done some of his games, like do all the players buy in? I mean, it seems like it's up and down. It feels to me like, like, um, you know, Sam has covered up a lot of, yeah. a lot of like, you know, he's kept the glue together, but I don't think it's all the way there. Right. And, you know, like they've been a really up and down program. And I think without Sam, they'd be a, they'd be at best a 500 program, but they fortunately <laughs> have them. And so they're a fringe top 25 kind of team. Yeah. Right. I think these guys just have to be good at so many different things. And we, 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 as fans, we have the luxury of focusing on one at a time. You know, it's like, oh, he's a good play caller or oh, he's a good recruiter or oh, he builds a good team culture, but these are very different skills and they need those three and, and many more. And they have to be a politician with alumni when you're, at a place like Michigan or USC, it's just a it's just a hell of a skill set you have to pull together. And the other thing is that this coaching thing is so it's a group task, really. And like you said, some guys win with other guys' players. And so how it's just such a hard assessment. And it's you know it's just the hit rate is easily below five hundred. But every time you know it doesn't keep us from being perfectly confident. Next time someone's hired, this is the guy. You know we're sure this is the guy. Somehow we never learned that lesson. Yeah. And it's a big investment and the money is only bigger. And when it, when it doesn't go well, and eventually it's almost always not going to go well. Right. You know, it's like you may, Ed Ogeron won a national title. And right now the, you know, whatever, nine months later, there's a lot of LSU fans are really disappointed. It's incredible how quickly they can turn. Bruce, one last question for you. And this is one that's more general than the book and more general than the sport. Really. It's a question about relationships that I know our students struggle with some. And I think it's, uh, I think it's unique to journalists. I think it's especially 
frequently journalists, and so I'm curious your take. How do you, you have all these relationships with coaches. They are your sources. Mm -hmm. And yet you have decades long relationships with them. I'm sure many of them are your friends. How do you cultivate both of those things simultaneously? Like genuine, authentic relationships, and yet they're professionally advantageous to you. I think you just... You know, I think that cultivate is the great word and, and you, it's like a garden, you got to water it, you got to keep it going, you know? So I check in with people, you know, even if I don't need anything for them and that's kind of, you know, you want, you just, you want the outlet to be there. You want to be able to connect people and to connect with people. And to me, that's the most important thing. And sometimes relationships you know, winnow away and maybe you're like, yeah, I used to be in good with that person. Now they don't re- respond and I have no idea what happened, you know? Um, but it's, you know, cause at some point you still have to be critical you can't say that the, co- the coach or the, you know, uh, won when they didn't win. Right. But at right. the same time, I think you have to, you know, I think you have to have a genuine curiosity. And I think they know that like, ultimately, look, I feel like I am covering the sport. I am, covering college football I'm not covering something that you know like I like covering college football I like the sport and I think that comes across to anybody who reads my work they know I genuinely love college football and so I think the fan I think the fans get it but I certainly think the coaches get it too and so I think that part has helped me a lot yeah I suspect that translates down to you you like the guys and you like and you respect the job Yes. And that comes across, and they must know that at some level. Um, terrific. Listen, Bruce, thanks for making time for us. We oh, uh, always enjoy talking to you. I wish you the best with the book. It is uh, Flip the Script, a brand new book out last week from Bruce Feldman. Bruce, good luck with the book, and good luck with the football covers. Thanks so much. My pleasure. All right. That was Bruce Feldman, and that was another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week, of course, from the whole crew. Maddie Gatz, the boss man. Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Shane Jensen, who joined me here in the last quarter. Very much appreciate that. Audie Weiner, Eric Rattle. This has been Cade Massey. We will do it again as this is being posted. The election is being discussed. Results, at least partially, are understood. There will be so much to talk about next week. Between now and then, come back and join us. And between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>